This is an audio essay. To read the actual essay, go to mahanmccann.substack.com. The link is in the description on Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. Oh! Plotinus, Neoplatonism, and Beyond Narcissism. Part 7 of the Philosophical Guide to Self-Development Series. In this essay, I will show how Plotinus' philosophical system, Neoplatonism, provides the normative order for a meaningful worldview, based on John Verveke's argument and awakening from the meaning crisis. Firstly, we will introduce Plotinus and his ideas. Then we will show how he utilizes Aristotelian science, Stoic spiritual exercises, and finally introduce several important enacted symbols to describe his spiritual journey to the one. Plotinus, the sage. Never stop sculpting your statue, Plotinus. Plotinus, born 204 to 270 AD, was a Platonic philosopher born Hellenized Egyptian and the founder of Neoplatonism. Though he looked at himself as a Platonist, he formalized a lot of the work that came before and synthesized the best of ancient philosophy. When Plotinus started to learn philosophy at age 28, the Roman Empire was falling into the crisis of the 3rd century and in the death throes of its final collapse. The perception of a rising dramatic paradigm shift must have coloured this time, similar to our own. Plotinus was unconcerned about politics, though, and turned his attention to the infinite, the one, which we met in the essay on Plato as the good. Plotinus, like Plato, looked at philosophy not as an academic subject, but as a conversion of attention to see as we ought to see, a philosophical way of life. The philosopher was more of a spiritual advisor, who sought to mould his students to engage with the spiritual life, which is the deepest levels of the self, through spiritual exercises. Plotinus wanted to deter his students from concerns of the flesh like food, sex, status, and to become conscious of their spiritual lives again, and to reorient their attention to the highest good. His yoga of attention offered to rebuild a connection to the deepest levels of the self for the initiate. As Plotinus writes, To find God, it is not necessary to go to the temples he is supposed to inhabit. We do not have to budge to attain his presence. Rather, we must ourselves become a living temple. His yoga of attention aims at becoming this living temple, becoming godlike in that sense of being identified with the divine rather than earthly concerns. This reunion with the One is achieved through spiritual exercises and moral purifications as a way of life. Like most ancient philosophers, Plotinus believed we have everything we need to be happy within our minds and need nothing external to us. His philosophy, a grand spiritual journey, a heroic ascent and return from the One, guided this continuous self-transformation in a bid to turn his student's soul to the good. As his last words instructed, try to raise the divine in yourselves to the divine in the all. The levels of the self. Quote, Withdraw into yourself and look, and if you do not find yourself beautiful yet, act as does the creator of a statue that is to be made beautiful. He cuts away here, he smooths there, he makes this line lighter, this other purer, until a lovely face has grown upon his work. So do you also. Cut away all that is excessive, straighten out all that is crooked, bring light to all that is overcast. Labour to make all one glow of beauty, and never cease chiselling your statue, until there shall shine out on you from the, the godlike splendour of virtue, until you shall see the perfect goodness surely established in the stainless shrine. Plotinus.
It is necessary to say something about Platonian metaphysics to situate his ethics. However, we won't dwell too long or go too deep into this for fear of getting stuck in the philosophical weeds. In this essay series, I am mainly using the language of training as much as possible, rather than the language of explaining, so that we might seek to initiate these ideas in our own lives. In the Aristotle essay, we discussed how Aristotle set up a chain of being, and how his science set up levels of being from pure potential to what was most actual. In this chain of being, living things like plants occupy one level, animals with minds another, and rational beings like humans in the top spot. For Plotinus, these were all levels of the self and not separable from reality. In Neoplatonism, ontology and psyche are unified. These levels of the self are not separable from reality. Therefore, as we progress to the deepest levels of the self, we encounter something else, a deeper level of reality which Plotinus calls the one or the good. This chain of being culminating in the one shows how we organize the psyche upwards from pure potential to actualization. Plotinus saw what was at the bottom, pure potential, formless chaos, as the source of evil in the world, and this he called matter, which is quite different to how we use the term today. Evil in this sense had no reality of its own, being formlessness, but was parasitic on the good. Evil is more like entropy. Important to remember that everything we call a thing has a form, a structural functional organisation that makes it intelligible as one thing. The world of forms is a stock of real and intelligible patterns in the world. Plotinus argued that if we cast our minds to higher and higher forms, we could become more integrated and complex creatures. He saw things as becoming more real as we integrate them together because they come closer to being one. Therefore, by casting our minds to the highest form, we can become the best version of ourselves, a good person, which is the same as an actualized person for Plotinus, one who is most like the one. This idea of the one was dramatically inspired in The Matrix with Neo, which of course is a reference to Neoplatonism, who discovers that he is the one and then must train to become like the one. But how does this all look in practicality? Verveke pointed out previously that Plato has these levels of the self in his work, which we already discussed. The first level was a monster. He used the example of Cerebrus, the three-headed dog, or a chimera, which crosses multiple categories. This is a biological, appetitive self obsessed with short-term salience. The second level of the self was a lion, a social status-seeking, honour-driven self, what Martin Luther King described as the drum major instinct, a desire for greatness and social status, avoiding shame and guilt that all human beings have. And the third was a human being, capable of long-term goal-setting, reasoning and caring about truth and false, but motivationally weak compared to the others. Verveke argues all these three levels of the self are in conflict with one another because they all trade off across different timelines. This inner conflict causes divided attention. For example, the monster wants cake, the lion wants to look good at the beach, and the human being wants to live a long and healthy life. The lion and the human being don't have the same aim, so the monster wins, and you eat the cake. However, then you might join a weight loss group, and the man and the lion team up because the lion wants to look good for the group, and can now defeat the monster. Hence, when the parts of the self are coordinated, salience becomes regulated towards long-term goals, and attention can be sustained, and flow attained as we discussed in the last essay on Stoicism and Inner Peace. 
The mission of Platonian philosophy, like Plato, is to integrate these levels of the self, unifying short and long-term goals up the stack. This integration process occurs dramatically by pursuing the good. This is a self-realization, which Verveke argues is how you make the self real, by pursuing reality. Interestingly, this ancient conception of self-realization is in line with the latest arguments on the autonomy of attention. And James Williams makes almost the exact same argument on goals and integrating goals in his 2017 PhD thesis. Williams writes, As the criterion that attentional mechanisms use to prioritize information, goal relevance is important for many existing conceptions of autonomy. Austin and Vancouver define a goal as the internal representation of a desired state. A substantial literature on the psychology of human goals exists, and the topic is an area of active research. Of immediate importance, however, is research on the psychology of goals that have shown they exist in a hierarchical network structure. In such a structure, immediate goals, i.e. tasks, inhabit the lowest level of the hierarchy, and the goals that they serve inhabit higher levels. He then goes on to write, In fact, I believe that the concept of a goal is elastic enough to have even wider applicability. I suggest that it could be extended to include, on one hand, actions to which our irrational, impulsive System 1 selves are attracted, i.e. the goals of your biological self, as well as, at the other extreme, our highest level metacognitive goals, i.e. goals about goals, which correspond to Frankfurt's second-order desires. In this sense, autonomy, human freedom, comes from the integration of these goal systems towards higher-order goals. The application of this kind of thinking is revolutionary, but what I focus on is the integration of the self, is the integration of competing goals across competing timescales, long-run and short-run, and that this is fundamentally worked out through attention, which is influenced by both unconscious short-term salience and long-term goal-directed prioritization. We will look at how Plotinus addresses these issues in the next section. Grace, virtue, and self-integration. In the first essay, we discussed Greek accounts of self-control, Encratia and Sofferson. The former is a white-knuckle, inhibitory, don't-eat-the-cake type of self-control, and the latter is more like right desire, being oriented to and tempted by the right things. In the last essay, we looked at the Stoic account of disciplining desire, which is what Plotinus recommends also but that this encratic inhibitory self-control might only be an intermediary stage in cultivating a desire for the right things. This, of course, leads to the question, what are the right things? The right things are what is most valuable, and therefore we return again to this problem of a hierarchy of value. This type of self-integration can be thought of as philosophical grace. Grace is a complex religious idea, but how I think about philosophical grace is essentially the same as St. Augustine's theory of desire. Augustine's theory of desire is that we are faced with too many goods as human beings. Sex is good, food is good, the internet is good, but if one of them becomes the highest good, that's when we start to have problems. That's when we get addicted. For St. Augustine, we have a restless and spiritual hunger in us always that makes us endlessly desire more and more. And when we try to satisfy this desire with finite goods, we find no lasting peace. So the question is, how do we satisfy the restless and spiritual hunger inside of ourselves? You can make a good neurobiological argument why this is the case. Because our dopamine system, which is the only reward system, controls all positive emotion and is goal-directed, therefore we experience positive emotion pursuing a goal. 
However, once we achieve that goal, we drop below baseline level again. A cruel joke, this is why athletes often become depressed after winning the greatest game of their lives, which doesn't really make sense. It makes sense when you know that we only achieve positive emotion while pursuing the goal, so once the goal is achieved, no more positive emotion, and we need a new one to start again. I would argue that this type of life without a transcendent or infinite goal becomes absurd, and is Camus' myth of Sisyphus, rolling a boulder up a hill to simply watch it roll down again. It's desire whack-a-mole. You get one, and then you just need another, another, and another, until you die. So what's the solution? Augustine observed that the finite goods don't work, so therefore we need an infinite goal. He made the clever point that what we are trying to fill is a God-shaped hole, and so what fits the hole must be godlike and not any finite good. So to stop the restlessness and hunger, we need an infinite goal, one that structures all the other goals in the hierarchy, and that nothing else fits in that top spot other than God, the one, the good, whatever you want to call it. For Augustine, who trained as a Neoplatonist before becoming a Christian, God is the absolute standard of value that organises all of the other relative values into a hierarchy of value. Without something at the top, i.e. God, we will put other things at the top, like sex, status, drugs, and whatever else, to fill the void. But none of those things will work. This is the functionality of God, which we are missing in the secular world today. So how do we have lasting peace? In the last essay, we discussed the normativity of desire, and that desire should be disciplined by the twin norms of inner peace and connecting to reality, and that this is a dialectical process of seeing higher virtues to overcome vice, and this comes through attention and not thinking, which affects what we consider real. In this sense, Plotinus' virtues of purification don't just overcome bad habits, but actually bring us closer to reality itself as we become more real ourselves which was discussed in detail in the essay on Plato. This integration of the self, overcoming divided attention, is all about building a functioning hierarchy of values. Then we can dialogue with ourselves to argue and persuade the inner parties to pursue the higher goods, and then we get better at valuing and desiring the right things for the right reasons. Philosophical grace occurs as we desire the good, the highest good, which is the infinite goal and that this reorders and aligns our fragmented psyche. And so, instead of beating ourselves into shape encratically, we set the right aim, a vision of the good, and pursue that vision, and that this is what integrates the parts of the self together. Plotinus describes it thus, and contemplation for the ancients doesn't mean thinking, it means seeing more deeply into reality. The more the soul is directed to that contemplation of that which is before it, that is, its higher half, the fairer and more powerful it is. It receives from there and gives to what comes after it, and is always illuminated as it illuminates. Vision, divine doubles, and the higher half. Socrates suggests in Plato's Alcibiades dialogue that the oracle's commandment to know thyself is a bit like see thyself. But how do you see yourself if you are the one doing the seeing? Well, Socrates suggests we need a mirror, and offers that we have one at our disposal in the eyes of our beloved. He tells Alcibiades that in the reflection of our beloved eyes, we see a reflection of who we could be, our best selves, a loving mirror. Mirrors offer us inverted reflections of ourselves. We will be fools to think the mirror is precisely who we are, but getting in touch with your unconscious is a bit like looking at the back of your own head. 
it requires reflection. As James Williams writes, dignified reflections show us the goals, preferences, and values we identify with. So in order to see our values and to start working on them, we need a good reflection. And this is where the wisdom of the ancients can help us out. In Plotinus's time, people weren't looked at as individuals, but as individuals. Humans had a divine spark within us that was really our true self. In myth, this character is the guardian angel, or in Socrates' case, his daemon, which gave him ethical guidance, and it is also known as a divine double. In the ancient view, the divine double was who you really were, your true self, and so your job was to become again like that true self that you're separated from. Plotinus described it in this quote, Bit by bit, the material sculpture conforms itself to the sculpture's vision. When, however, sculpture and statue are one, when they are both one and the same soul, soon the statue is nothing other than vision itself. In the modern secular sense, the divine double is the ideal future self. This ideal future self is a vision of the best you can do, the form of your actualized potential and a vision of the good. Plotinus argues that your current self and that highest vision of who you could be must become one. This sounds very much like Jordan Peterson when he says he learned from Carl Jung that every ideal is a judge. Because when you posit an ideal, you automatically compare your present circumstances to that hypothetical ideal. So there is something frightening about positing the ideal self that opens a door to failure, a quest to become who you could be, and the beasts, monsters and trials you would have to face in order to do so. So there is plenty of incentive to keep your ideal future self hidden in the fog of the unconscious and not strike up a proper relationship with it. Still, if the ancients are to believe, this is living a half-life, a life without meaning. As forging a loving connection with the ideal future self is a profound source of meaning and coordination of one's life. As Pierre Hadot writes, the artist's work can be a symbol of the quest for the true self, just as a sculpture tries in a block of stone to attain to the form which will render the ideal beauty perceptible, so must the soul seek to give spiritual form by rejecting everything but herself. The alignment of the parts of the self comes through the enacted symbol of the divine double, the ideal future self, which sets the normative constraints for how we behave in the present, but can only be caused into existence through our decisions, which almost seems paradoxical. The ideal future self is a moving target, constantly adjusting, reforming, updating, and being excavated as the soul's journey goes on toward the good. This is how Plotinus describes this transformative process. If you become thus purified, residing in yourself, and have nothing any longer to impede this unity of mind, and no farther mixture to be found within, but perceiving your whole self to be a true light and light alone, a light which through immense is not measured by any magnitude, nor limited by any circumscribing figure, but is everywhere immeasurable as being greater than every measure and more excellent than every quantity. If perceiving yourself thus improved and trusting solely to yourself as no longer requiring a guide, fix now steadfastly your mental view, for with the intellectual eye alone can such immense beauty be perceived. But if your eye is yet infected with any sordid concern and not thoroughly refined, while it is on the stretch to behold this most shining spectacle, it will be immediately darkened and incapable of intuition. Though someone should declare the spectacle present, which it might be otherwise able to discern, for it is here necessary that the perceiver and the thing perceived should be similar to each other before true vision can exist. 
Thus, the sensitive eye can never be able to survey the orb of the sun unless strongly endued with solar fire and participating largely of the vivid ray. Everyone, therefore, must become divine and of godlike beauty before he can gaze upon a god and the beautiful itself. Plotinus, Essay on the Beautiful. Here we see the main commandment of the normativity of the Plotinus journey, which is similar to the dramatic enactment of the cave, that one must undergo this path of purification to get out of the darkness that one lives within, to see the light and the sun, which represents the good, which is how we develop in order to be able to separate the form of the beautiful from the particulars of the beautiful, which will be important in the next section when we see a successful case of the Platinian journey and an unsuccessful one. Harry Potter versus Narcissus. I often illustrate these abstract philosophical ideas with dramatic examples if I can. You might remember in the first Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Harry finds a mirror called the Mirror of Arised. Arised is desire spelled backwards. In this mirror, he sees his dead parents. And Dumbledore tells him that whoever looks into the mirror will see a vision of their heart's deepest desire. Dumbledore explains that the perfect person who has lived the perfect life would look into the mirror and see themselves as they are because they desire nothing more and are fully actualized. Harry eventually faces the mirror again as the final trial of a seven, which he has to face to stop Voldemort from getting the stone. The first is also a three-headed dog, which is what Plato described as the appetite of self, and also connects to the myth of Orpheus, who had to put to sleep the three-headed dog Cerebus in order to enter the underworld and free his lover. J.K. Rowling is a genius. Harry has to face seven challenges, all of which test a different skill, wisdom, cunning, strength, etc., And through his friendships, he gets through these. The final test is the mirror itself. And this time when he looks in, he sees only himself, implying that he has let go of the dream of the missing family that he so valued, but which is impossible. He then sees in his pocket that he has the Philosopher's Stone. And he was able to get the stone, unlike Voldemort, because he didn't want to use the stone for himself. The stone is an alchemical idea of an object that can turn lead into gold and grant everlasting life. Carl Jung looked at it as a symbol for psychological development, moral and intellectual, which we will be looking at in the next essay. Harry Potter is an example of a triumphant hero's journey. However, we can contrast it to the myth of Narcissus, who Plotinus uses as an example of a spiritual failure, and an example of what happens when you only direct your attention to the lower goods. A brief summary of the myth of Narcissus is that Narcissus was a beautiful youth and the son of the god Cephasus and nymph named Lerope. Tiresias, the blind seer, a prophet who often turns up in Greek myths to warn characters not to do certain things, prophesied that Narcissus would live to be an old man as long as he never came to know himself. The problem, however, was that Narcissus was beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that all the boys and girls who saw him were struck by his beauty and desired him. Many of them pined away with unrequited love and despair because he ignored them, and some died from their heartache. At first, Narcissus paid them no heed and went about his business, which appears to have been hunting. He was a hunter by trade. The god Nemesis, god of divine retribution, didn't like the fact that Narcissus was so completely indifferent to all of the hearts he was breaking. So Nemesis arranged it so Narcissus would come face to face with his own reflection in the surface of the water. When he stopped to quench his thirst in the waters of a spring one day, Narcissus promptly fell in love with his own reflection. Wanting to kiss his beautiful reflection, he leaned into the water and drowned. 
or depending on which version of the myth you read, he pined away or even stabbed himself when he realised he couldn't have the object of his desire, namely himself. The Narcissus flower related to the daffodil is said to have sprung up from the dead body of Narcissus. Freud, of course, took the story of Narcissus as the foundation of his theory of narcissism, a person whose incredible self-involvement detaches them from reality. There's a rich literature interpreting the story, but Plotinus looks at Narcissus in this way. He describes him as the born lover, to whose degree the musician also may attain, but then either come to a stand or pass by. He has a certain memory of beauty, but severed from it now, he no longer comprehends it. Spellbound by visible loveliness, he clings amazed about that. His lesson must be to fall down no longer in bewildered delight before some one embodied form. He must be led under a system of mental discipline to beauty everywhere and made to discern the one principle underlying all. A principle apart from the material form, springing from another source and elsewhere more truly present. Narcissus fails to detach the form of the beautiful from his own image. He becomes attached to the lower goods, like the guy who can't stop chasing women because he confuses sex with love, or the alcoholic who destroys themselves because they confuse intoxication with peace. Narcissus looks into the mirror, the ideal future self, and sees not an ideal aspirational image of beauty that he should try and become like, but rather himself. Like a bad athlete who already believes they are the best, he stops training and loses what talent he has. A little grandiosity can be a dangerous thing. I've heard narcissism described as unearned confidence, and that it's confusing oneself for the finished product, which is a kind of an illusion because you are believing that you are better than you are, and the egocentrism is stopping you from seeing what's real. This grandiosity stops oneself from engaging in the spiritual exercises necessary to actualize one's true life, and you lose the spiritual life, which is so meaningful for human beings. There's a strange inversion in the story of Narcissus, when Tiresias warns against him knowing himself, as this is the first rule of Socratic philosophy, to know thyself, to know the principles guiding your action. But Narcissus fails to divine the principles guiding his action, and instead falls in love with his own image. Jung describes the dangers of this ego inflation and spiritual development in his essay, The Ego and the Unconscious. And he describes spiritual ego inflation as autoerotic infantilization. And he describes spiritual ego inflation as autoerotic infantilization, which was essentially flating yourself with big, airy concepts. And we see tons of that in the modern spiritual hippie cults floating around all day. As Alan Watts said, getting rid of your ego is the biggest ego trip around. Plotinus uses the example of Ulysses from the Odyssey as an example of a spiritual success of the journey to the one. So I think we can see from this and understand the Neoplatonic system a bit that it's a philosophical version of the hero's journey, not a stale, abstract, philosophical system, but spiritual exercises and a yoga of attention that is designed to be practiced as one detaches from lower goods to higher goods that integrate the subsystems of the self. We see two poles of the spiritual journey are represented in Harry Potter, a narcissist, one who quests for the one and the one who thinks they are the one. I think this dichotomy illustrates the strangeness of the Plotinian system, which is that at the deepest levels of the self is where we will meet something else. And that the way to reality isn't just through the eyes, but through the mind. Or as Plato put it, we have to get out of our own way first to meet the truth. 
and that to be content with the non-spiritual life of lower goods is to risk falling in love with our own reflection like the tragic narcissist. In the next essay, we will develop the spiritual life further into the modern world with Jung's theory. In the next essay, we will follow the spiritual life into the modern world with Carl Jung's theory of individuation and his example of the alchemical journey as a modern myth of psychological integration.